Hi, listeners. Marty West here. Just letting you know that on February 22nd, minutes after we recorded this episode focused on whether the U.S. Department of Education should waive the requirement that states test students this spring, the Biden administration provided its own initial answer to that question. In a letter addressed to the nation's chief state school officers, Acting Assistant Education Secretary Ian Rosenblum wrote that the department would not provide a blanket waiver to all states. He did, however, say that states should not bring students back into schools solely for the purpose of taking tests, that they could have flexibility to administer shorter tests than usual or delay testing to the fall, and that it would consider requests for additional flexibility on a case-by-case basis. As you'll hear, my guest today thinks states should take the new administration up on that last offer. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Federal law requires states to test students in math and reading each year in grades three to eight and once in high school, based on the premise that such testing provides a crucial window into how schools are performing and different groups of students are faring. Last spring, as COVID-19 shuttered schools, the U.S. Department of Education waived that requirement. Should the incoming Biden administration do the same this year? Would testing in 2021 place an unnecessary burden on schools and yield untrustworthy data? Or has the pandemic made testing more essential than ever? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and my guest today is Scott Marion. Scott is executive director of the Center for Assessment and, along with Lori Shepard, author of Focus on Intervention, Not Assessment in 2021, an article that appears in the spring 2021 issue of the journal and is available now at educationnext.org. Scott, welcome to the Ednext podcast. Thanks, Marty. Good to be here. Now, your article offers advice to the incoming Biden administration on how it should approach state testing this school year. And as I understand it, you had the chance to share those recommendations with that administration as part of the presidential transition process. Is that right? That's correct. We sent the memo to the transition team, and we know that it was certainly read by the transition team. We don't know if it was read by the incoming secretary, but certainly uh, folks on the transition team. So listeners will certainly be interested to hear you uh, talk through what those recommendations are. Of course, whether or not to grant a new round of waivers and what exactly any waivers should allow is one of the first major decisions that Miguel Cardona will make once he's confirmed as education secretary. And your first piece of advice deals not with testing per se, but with accountability. That is how any tests administered this spring should be used. Why'd you start there and what's the logic behind your recommendation? Um, so Marty, the because assessment is often conflated with accountability, especially state, especially state level assessment, we were worried that um, that if we didn't separate the two uh, discussion points, that people would continue to conflate them. I think that almost every state is applying for maximum flexibility in terms of accountability. That's not gonna require necessarily a special waiver um, from the US Department of Education. They've invited that through what they're calling an addendum process uh, to last year's waivers. And that's because of data that were missing from the 1920 school year, for instance, 49 out of 50 states use growth in their accountability systems. Without a prior year, you could certainly do a workaround and calculate what we call skip year growth, but it's not as valid, most people would argue, as doing the sequential year growth. So the accountability piece 
is sort of already off the table, but in case anybody was thinking about it, we just want to make clear that that there's almost no reason that we could see why uh, states should try to employ their same accountability systems that they have for the last 20 years or so. Or even use tests at all in accountability systems that they're going to have in place this year. Is that right? And that's, that's what's the correct. logic behind that? The logic is that there's too many, um, you know, accountability carries this notion of attribution. If I'm saying that this school has performed poorly, I'm attributing the performance of those kids to the people in that school, the teachers, the principals, et cetera, right? Uh, same thing with teacher evaluation. That's much more directly attributable We're saying this teacher is not performing as well as these other teachers. So I'm attributing school uh, student performance to those teachers. Well, in this case, we know there's so many confounding factors that make uh, these attribution uh, challenges even more exacerbated than they are normally. In many cases, they're challenging in the best of circumstances. And we are so far from the best of circumstances. So if a kid didn't learn because they didn't have access to the internet or they didn't have a device to learn, how do you attribute that performance to a school? Now, districts might be responsible for that, but not, 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 not schools and teachers. Now, one of the things you and Lori write is that even if a state decides to forego accountability consequences this year, it's likely that, at least in some quarters, schools and teachers will be blamed for poor test results. What do you mean by that? And to what extent is that a concern that hangs over your recommendations with respect to testing generally? Yeah, it's a recommendation that, uh, you know, we thought about, you know, years ago, um, many years ago, now, I was the assessment director in uh, Wyoming. And um, I would say to people, well, we're not using these results for accountability. And they said, these results get printed in a newspaper. That's accountability to us. Right. And so in most uh, states, public uh, laws, public reporting laws would require some dissemination of these results, whether it's to the press or to oftentimes realtors. Um, and so schools treat that as accountability. I, I joke lately that, uh, you know, I have this uh, terrific six year old uh, lab rescue, but we picked him up from a, it was shipped to us from some uh, pound in South Carolina where it was clearly was hit in the head as a puppy. And as spoiled as this dog's life is, if you go near his head, he'll move it. And the teachers feel the same way. If you say, oh, trust me, we're not gonna use this test for accountability and we're just gonna use it to report, they're, they're waiting for that newspaper to hit them in the head. And that's, um, that's really, and, and I've had this uh, validated recently in at least three states where I've been in conversations with district folks and they say that that's what they're hearing exactly from their teachers, you know? So like, we heard this story before, we don't sure we believe you. So part of the issue is how any data that's gathered would be used and interpreted both formally and informally. Of course, the other big challenge this year is simply gathering the data. Tragically, it seems likely that a substantial share of students in many states will not have returned to in-person schooling by March and April when testing windows typically open. Now, one possible response to that is to test students remotely. Many certification exams taken by adults are administered online, and the College Board administered shortened versions of advanced placement tests to high school students last spring. Why shouldn't the feds ask states to do the same in K-12 schools? 
Yeah, that's that's a logical question. And I think one of the fastest responses is college board is not doing it again this year. They they learned their lesson and they they made the decision based on the AP experience not to uh, have the SAT be administered remotely this year. Um, and, and they're not going to do AP remotely again. There's in certification exams where you're paying three, four, five hundred dollars for an exam, you could put in the proper, and it's often one-on-one, -on -one, uh, you could put in the proper uh, proctoring requirements that I could watch your eye movements and things like that. What we've seen from both the AP experience as well as the interim assessment uh, test companies like NWEA or Renaissance or Curriculum Associates is that there's very funny performance patterns that you wouldn't necessarily expect. So for instance, the remote kids tend to outperform the in-person kids um, in early elementary school. And you think everybody's talking about what a tragedy it is for these uh, little kids not being able to learn how to read and somehow they're performing better. Well, of course, you're a parent. No, you know, if, you, if your kid's crying out for help, and you say an easy way to help them to have them be quiet, you're probably just going to help them or not even in cheating. You're just, you're just trying to help your kid like a good parent. And so we think a lot of that's going on. We think by the time the kids get into, uh, you know, a little more clever into middle school, that they have figured out ways of uh, keeping their kids. Uh, you know, their iPhone or whatever they have below the camera. So they could be Googling answers and, and things like that. So remote administration might work for different kinds of tests. But if you have the kind of tests that you could easily use a calculator to solve problems, if it's, if it's not a calculator enabled test, or you could easily use Google to look things up, then that's not the kind of test you should be offering remotely. And we don't have time to redesign our tests. What about the idea of bringing students into school specifically for testing, even if they're not yet regularly attending school in person? You know, I, I, um, I'm proud to say that you know, I don't always stick to my guns, that I sometimes look at uh, evidence and, and backtrack. And that was something that I had proposed early on. I thought we could increase the uh, length of the test windows so that we could space kids out. And um, this uh, leader in one of the states where I work, whose governor issued a, uh, you know, basically a remote instruction uh, order that said it's not safe for you to be in school. She said to me, she said, how can we possibly tell people it's not safe for them to be in school for learning, but it's safe for them to be in school for testing? And that really hit me is that you'd have to tie yourself in a moral knot to say, not safe for learning, but but fine, t take a risk and, and come in for testing. We're seeing that play out now with uh, the WIDA access test, the English language proficiency exam. And this is a fascinating one because you have quote unquote equity advocates on both sides of this issue. Some are saying it's reprehensible to put these families at risk by exposing kids to potential disease by bringing them to test. Others are saying it's just as reprehensible to not figure out where these kids are in their English language proficiency. So this is not one of those where there's an easy right answer. So if remote testing isn't feasible, and if we shouldn't bring kids back into schools just to be tested, that implies that in-person schooling is a prerequisite for moving forward with testing. But, but you and Lori actually go a bit farther than that. Your third recommendation is that the feds not require states to administer tests unless almost all students have been learning in school for at least a month 
prior to testing. Why that additional caveat? Well, to, to be honest, the, uh, the, um, the month um, was a, a bit arbitrary, but the idea we wanted to put out a marker that's like not like the kids get back to school today and we're going to start testing tomorrow. And, and that we've heard from, uh, you know, in my work, I, I interact with a lot of folks at, at schools and districts, and they said, look, we, we're desperate for instructional time. And so we felt like unless they were already back in school in a regular routine, that it would make sense. And the other part of it is, is that now they're in the practice of schooling there, they have some uh, context that makes sense to them. And so now this becomes part of that normal context, as opposed to uh, just a few kids back. Uh, so that's why we put that caveat in is that we, we wanted it not to be like, welcome back to school um, and uh, get ready for the test tomorrow. Because first of all, the school personnel would get really upset um, at us taking away the instructional time they've been craving. So that's why we put it, that caveat in there. So let's talk a little bit about what would be lost if state tests are not able to go forward this year. At his Senate confirmation hearing, Miguel Cardona, Joe Biden's nominee for education secretary, said when asked about this issue, if we don't assess where our students are in their level of performance, it's going to be difficult for us to provide targeted support and resource allocation in the manner that can best support the closing of the gaps that have been exacerbated due to this pandemic. What's your response to Cardona's concern? Yeah, I think that... Um it's a concern that I've heard, and I, I don't think it's illogical at all. I, th I think it's important, and, and this is where I have to separate my, you know, research hat from my practitioner hat. And and so my research hat says, boy, I'd love to have these data to see what's going on, so we could understand this fact. My practitioner hat, and in addition to my regular work, I'm also crazy enough to serve on my local school board and have for eight years. So I see how this, you know, the school and district improvement cycle plays out, you know, really uh, on the ground. And the reality is, if you're planning for any kind of um, significant interventions, like I hope people are, to start this summer, or even next fall, you have to be planning now. Aggregate data from state tests won't come back until late June at the earliest and more likely July. And so if so, you have to think about what's your theory of action for how these data are going to contribute to supporting interventions. I can't wait until July and say, oh, Marty's really needs a little help in fractions in, his, in fourth grade math. First of all, the state tests are not uh, fine grained enough to be able to provide that level of information about individual kids on individual learning targets. So we need closer to the classroom kind of assessments for that. These are kind of big programmatic issues that's, that would say, wow, compared to where this school had been or this district had been, they're performing much worse than they have relative to other districts like them. And that's a, that's a bigger aggregate picture. Um, I still think that we have other ways of understanding that, but I'd be okay with that use. That use to me is okay to maybe then provide more support for the 2021-22 school year. But for intervening with kids who need help, we have to, you know, we have to be launching a Marshall Plan like now. And that really brings us to your fourth and final major recommendation, which was that even if some states are in a position to test 
you actually urged the federal government to think about flexibility for them as well, given the potential unintended consequences of testing this year and the fact that there may be other sources of information that would be just as or even more valuable. Can you help us understand what some of those sources of information could be? Yeah, we've been talking a lot about this notion of opportunity to learn. It's a it's about a 50-year-old concept that really gets at the uh, the supports necessary for kids and teachers to be able to do their uh, work, their teaching and learning well. And, you know, some of the easy ones, the low-hanging fruit, if you will, that we have for this year is, you know, what's the um, internet access by, you know, some, you know, micro blocks, if you will, in, in terms of census mapping? What's the... Uh, districts should know which kids have devices and which kids don't. Um, and then you could get into, uh, you know, finer level information. Who's got a quiet spot to work in their home? Or are they crowded around a table with four other siblings all working on their, their lessons? Um, who has an adult in the home available to potentially help them either with just technological issues like I need help getting online or I need help with my math homework. And so all those sorts of things. Um, and, and then we could get into other things like the nature of the curriculum of the district enacted, the kind of professional learning that teachers had around, around remote instruction. All these things would help inform us without even looking at a test score about who's going to need help. Um, and this is a case where I think, look, I know the, uh, the money is always limited, but this is a case where we could err on the side of, of over-supporting as opposed to under-supporting. Now, state accountability systems had moved rightly, in my view, toward incorporating measures of students' achievement growth over time. You referred earlier in our conversation about 49 states having that as part of their accountability yep. plans. One concern with delaying the administration of tests is that we need these scores to serve as the baseline for evaluating students' progress going forward. In this context, that means essentially their recovery from any pandemic-related drops in achievement. Do you share that concern? And if so, what about testing in the fall of 2021 at the start of the 21-22 school year? Yeah, so let me take those separately. So I think that, um, as you know, the tests are designed and validated for a limited number of purposes and uses. Uh, generally, one, two is pushing it. Um, and these state summative tests are really designed to measure end of year learning for kids at particular grades or courses. And now to say, we're going to move this to the fall. So, you know, right away, play that out. Well, would I do it the first three days back to school? Oh, no, that would be a problem. So we'd move it until kids are back into school a little bit. And so now I'm interrupting the school year with giving a test that would have very little value for anyone that school year. It would just be a data collection point that I think it's water under the bridge at that point. It's, it's, it's too little, too late. I think we get what we could get this year. I think the only reason we're doing this is to uh, restart our accountability systems. Um, we have other ways of, of figuring out how to bridge accountability systems and, and maybe um, if states could test enough kids. Look, we're not saying not to test. We're saying states should have the flexibility. We're not 
arguing for a blanket waiver like it was in 2020. We're saying that the federal government should entertain requests from states based on their context and their needs. So we'll have some data from a lot of states to be able to understand how things are going. It's going to be different across states. I understand that, but there'll be a lot of similar messages. And saying that we just need this to restart our accountability systems in 2022 is sort of a weak argument to me. That that's you know that's a little bit of a tail and, and wagging the dog in my view. Finally, I know some advocates worry that an additional year without testing will spell the end of state tests as we know them. That. Mm-hmm. Politically, it will become impossible to restore them. It seems to me that issue could cut the other way, that moving forward with testing in less than optimal conditions or using results for the wrong purposes could become a black mark on the record of state tests. Setting aside which is the more likely scenario, what are your hopes with respect to state testing going forward? Should we go back to normal in 2022, or is this a moment to rethink the entire enterprise? That's a great question. So keep in mind, I'm the executive director of a company called the Center for Assessment. So we, uh, so we like assessment, and um, and and uh, we we think it's important. I think that uh, you know, 2022 is interesting. We actually we're thinking about that. We're running some workshops this week about this. Is it a time to just sort of like get your feet set? Um, or is it a time to start innovating for something else? And I think depending on the state's appetite, I think it'll be one or the other. I think a lot of them will just be like, all right, can I just have a year to get set before you ask me to do something different? Or, um, but I think a few will say, this is a time to innovate. So I think a lot of states are feeling that, you know, all the eggs in one basket uh, uh, issue of, you know, everything riding on the end of your test. Now, the truth is they all had data but they didn't have it in any sort of systematic way before uh, b- before this. And so um, in terms of a balanced system of assessment or things like that. So I think states will start moving towards not necessarily like a through course design per se, but just recognizing there are data that are valuable throughout the year, whether it's opportunity to learn data, whether it's other types of assessment information. And I think they're gonna start, um, I, I think, start shrinking the footprint of the state summative assessment and the emphasis, like I said, all the eggs in that one basket. Um, But I don't think assessment is going anywhere um, in terms of uh, the people's end of state assessment. I don't buy that at all. I I think that state assessment is here to stay. States have a responsibility to ensure kids are uh, being provided adequate uh, and and equal educational opportunities. Um, States assessments are a useful monitor in that in that vein. So I, I don't think that's changing anytime soon. My guest today has been Scott Marion, Executive Director of the Center for Assessment and co-author of Focus on Intervention, Not Assessment in 2021. That article is available now at educationx.org. Scott, thanks for being part of the podcast. That was great. Thanks, Marty. You've been listening to the Ednext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use so that you don't miss an episode. And especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.